Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. A month before I graduated from high school, I attended the funeral of a classmate's brother. Just a few years older than us, he was drafted, trained to fly a helicopter, sent to Vietnam, and killed. Just like that. No more cherished older brother. Since high school, for the past five decades, I have enjoyed my sisters, their husbands, children, and grandchildren. We live close to each other, take family vacations, and frequently email, text, and talk. My old high school friend just has a stencil of his brother's name rubbed from the Vietnam Wall in D.C. I'm unsure how to make sense of this. Whether patriotism enters the equation, how history gets written, and whether American life is progressing or regressing. Let's discuss this today with a poet, essayist, and bard of the human condition. Warm greetings. We are back with a true friend of the show, uh, Bill Earhart. Uh, and this will be, Bill, this will be your third time. So I don't know, you're, yes. you're, you're in a unique club. We're going to get you like a, a vest or something like that or something special. So, Well, either that or your listeners are going to get tired of listening to me. <laughs> I, no, I'm, I, like, I, like I said earlier, you, we, you've got a big fan a club. People are always making comments about your previous guests uh, and appearances and um, you, you do good work. And I'm, let me give you a little, give everybody a little bit of background. First of all, Bill is a computer Luddite, so he doesn't do Zoom meetings. So we're having him in audio, which is just fine with me. And uh, we'll we'll put up pictures periodically as they seem appropriate. And I don't I, I don't know how to describe you. Um, you're obviously very literary. I've done a lot of uh, books, essays, uh, poet. Uh, you would be considered, I think, one of the major figures in Vietnam War literature. I don't think that's an understatement at all. I've been on ben, uh, Ken Burns' show, um, uh, and um, you're just a great poet. Every time I read you, I, I realize how much I appreciate you and enjoy your work. And well, we're, thank you. We're, we're here today talking about your brand new book, which is What We Can and Can't Afford, Essays on Vietnam, Patriotism, and American Life. And this is an interesting book because it's uh, it's not all about Vietnam. It's about our country and what's going on. And it's in short essay forms for what, about the past two, three decades? Is that right, Bill? No, this, well, this one covers uh, about 10 years worth. 10 years. Um, I, you know, I started out, as a poet, and that is still my primary love, my primary self-identification. Um, I did not write any prose except for college papers and stuff until I was in my 30s, and then I ended up writing uh, what what became Vietnam Percocy, my Vietnam War memoir, and uh, I have I have uh, branched out, uh, but I have done. Uh, this is actually my fourth essay collection. I seem to uh, I seem to get enough essays for a book about every decade. The first one was published in 1991, the second one in 2002, the third one in 2012, this one in 2023. So we'll see if I live long enough 
uh, <laughs> to get a fifth collection. But the the uh, f there's as you notice there's so many um, short essays in there. Um, over the last decade, in particular, I I have um, begun to write a lot of uh, what are what are essentially newspaper op-eds. They're run from 750 to 1,000 words. Newspapers will not print more than that. Um, and I have started writing these things on a regular basis, as I noted in the, uh, I think in the preface, I have two places, the New Hampshire Gazette, which is run by another Vietnam War veteran named Steve Fole, who's another amazing story. Uh, you, you really ought to think about interviewing him. Anyway, he does this bi-weekly eight-page newspaper called the New Hampshire Gazette, which has been, it is the oldest newspaper in America. It was originally founded in 1753 by some ancestor of his, who was also named Full, Daniel Full. And I started reading this paper back in the mid-90s, and I love it. It's just, it's a really an amazing piece of work. Um, and then about about 10 years ago, he started printing stuff of mine. And at this point, he'll print almost anything I send him. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to be short enough. And then there's also a website called Lost, uh, LA Progressive. Right. Uh, and, and they have a subsidiary called Hollywood Progressive, which is more for the arts. LA Progressive is politics and stuff. Um, they also, I started publishing with them uh, at the suggestion of, a friend of mine, um, again, about not not quite 10 years ago, and they too will print almost anything I send them. Now, this, the, the audiences for both of these publications pretty much already agree with me. Right. So I'm not really convincing anybody of anything, but I, write, I get to write about anything that's bothering me, anything that's on my mind, and it allows me to keep my head from exploding. Um, I, I get to vent... <laughs> Whatever I'm being, I'm pissed off about. Uh, then that's why the subjects are all over the board. I just figure, well, what am I going to write about this week? And Steve's paper comes out about every other, well, it's every other week. So generally, I write one or two of these things a month. Um, all of, if you go back and look at my four essay collections, the composition of the essays changes uh, significantly. Uh, the the third one had a lot of of uh, material in it about Korean War literature because I was working on that's what my doctoral dissertation is about and so I was doing a number of uh, chapters on on uh, various poets from the Korean War and those things got published but this new book I mean it's like what 200 and some pages and it's 62 essays uh, most of them are fairly short uh, occasionally I publish somewhere else uh, when I write things that have to do with the area I grew up in, I, I send them to the Bucks County Courier, uh, the Bucks County Herald, because um, I like the local folks to see it. My the school the school district where I grew up is now run by a bunch of lunatic MAGA people. Um, they're going through, you know, banning books from the school library, like, you know, Heather has two mommies because you're trying to make my child gay and all this bullshit that's been going on. Um, well, that's happening in spades 
in in the area where I grew up. We're being um, invaded by Moms for Liberty. Where we're oh at, yeah, well it, these people they're they're in, they're in charge of the school district that I went to 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. It, anyway, it, I, I watch the board meetings and they do their public comments. It's like you're listening to Saturday Night Live. I mean, you think oh, is, is this a is this a comedian or is this and no, it's this so, is real. <laughs> this is so actually going that, on. I think there's I think there's one or two essays in that collection that deal with uh local politics where i grew up um and so all all the things i write do not all necessarily appear in these two publications i mentioned but uh but m most of them do and when i get a chance to broaden my horizons to a, a, a somewhat different readership i i do that when i can so anyway yeah. that's blah 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 it's I, you know i there's just so many of these things i'd like to chat with you about but before we get before we get into your book you you are so prolific the number of books you've written uh and tell me about one of the ones that you did called busted a vietnam veteran in nixon's oh. america <laughs> I saw a clip about that. That's after you got back from the war. Tell me, tell me about that one. Oh yeah. Well, here's let me let me give you the full story on this stuff. Um, when I when I was uh, in my, I guess I was thirty years old, um, and I was teaching my first high school teaching job. A friend of mine called me up in the middle of the night, and he was practically in tears. He had just seen the movie The Deer Hunter, and he knew that I was a Vietnam veteran, but he had he called up to say that he'd he'd never realized how terrible it must have been for me. And he really and he was calling to say he was so sorry I'd ever had to deal with this. And of course the deer hunter is bullshit. It's Hollywood yeah. crap. It didn't happen that way. No no prisoner of war was ever forced to play a Russian roulette with uh, I mean, it's a, it's the movie is a con job. It makes it makes the victims out to be these young American kids instead of what we did to the Vietnamese. And so I'm I'm trying not to laugh because my friend Daniel is really upset and and he, he's sincere. But I hung up the phone that night and I decided I'm going to tell the real story. I'm going to tell America what really happened. Um, and that's how I started to write what what turned out. Uh, to be Vietnam Percocy. I didn't know how to write anything over like 25 lines. I'd been a poet for 15 years. Um, and so I spent two years thrashing around trying to get this book written. I finally, after two years, I've barely gotten myself out of Vietnam. I haven't been able to talk about what really mattered to me, which is coping with America after the war. Uh, and I gave up and uh quit writing after two years but the book got published as as vietnam percocy a combat marine memoir is what the publisher gave it as a subtitle and then then i decided well okay i'm going to write the, the book i really meant to write and so i sat down in 1984 and i wrote passing time memoir of a vietnam veteran against the war and it deals with the five years after I came back from Vietnam and basically how I made sense of what had happened in Vietnam, both to me and to my country. Um, 
But the book ends uh, with me on an oil tanker in the Pacific Ocean. I lost that job because the Coast Guard raided the ship and I was busted for possession of controlled substances. They accused me of smoking marijuana. Oh, my God. Why? Those, how could they dare? I, I eventually was found not guilty in a federal court of law, I'll have you know. Um, I love the Fifth Amendment. It's my favorite part of the Constitution. But anyway, uh, you, 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 you were smoking marijuana on a, on a tanker, though, right? Me? Me? Oh, goodness gracious. You want me to admit to a crime <laughs> on, on the radio? <laughs> anyway, the thing is, the book ends just before the bust. Literally, like a day or two before the Coast Guard raided the ship. But I'm writing this book in 1986. Nancy Reagan is, is telling everybody, just say no. And in 1986, I still wasn't saying no. And I was afraid that uh, this time, you know, the Philly cops would read my book and raid my house, and I wouldn't get off as easy as I did the last time I got busted. So I didn't write that that and I didn't write that into the story, but it and it took me another six years to realize that nobody was reading anything I wrote, nobody was paying any damn attention to me, so I might as well just finish the story. And that's how Busted got written. I wrote that six okay. years after I wrote Passing Time, and it's it's if I had known what I was doing, Pat, if I had known how to write, there would only be one book. It would be passing time, and busted would be the last 120 pages of that book. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing, and it, so it, it's funny because they market this thing as a trilogy, but in fact, <laughs> there are three books because I didn't know how to write, and I was too scared to tell the the real ending. So that, that's how that got got written. Busted is about. It begins with with the Coast Guard raid on my tanker, and it ends with uh, the end of my trial and the pardon of, and it, all of this co corresponds with uh, the House Judiciary Committee's hearings on Nixon. And he was, uh, he, he left office. He was pardoned by Ford like the same week that my trial judge rendered the decision. Mm -hmm. So Nixon's, Nixon's downfall and my, <laughs> And my downfall as a merchant seaman are bracketed. It's the story of me and Tricky Dick. Well, you're in good you're you're in good company there. Good company. <laughs> so that's that's how busted. That's what busted is really. You can read you can read Passing Time without reading Vietnam Percocy, and it makes sense. But busted makes no real sense unless you've read Passing Time. Hmm. Because I I got tired of telling the same story over and over again. So busted is really it's all the same people that were in passing time, and I don't bother to go back and tell any of that stuff again. You know, let me let me ask you a question. I, you know, you, you mentioned the deer hunter; it brings back uh, a memory. Uh, one of my buds is uh, a former Marine, Vietnam vet, um, Phil, and Phil hated that movie. And when you said that it was bullshit, it reminded me of Phil. Uh, he said it, it, it just horrible. It was. The setting was Western Pennsylvania, where I live, which made it even, even, triply uh, bad. Yeah, these guys were from Pittsburgh. Yeah, exactly. Right. But but my question is 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 what do you think? Do you think there's any good Vietnam uh, era film? Um, 
Which one do no. you think is decent? How about decent? No, there's not. There's not. What, I mean, what, here's what the thing. Take to, what would it take to do one? I mean, I go you know, well, back to like, all quiet in the Western uh, Front, which is. Here's a way. Here's a way to think of it. My, uh, if you know, I taught high school for 20 years, uh, recently retired. As I used to tell my students, if Hollywood were in the business of education, we'd all be sitting out at the King of Prussia Mall eating popcorn and getting our high school diplomas. Hollywood is not in the business of education. It's in the business of entertainment. And. The movies are there to entertain you. I mean, for instance, think of Saving Private Ryan. How many people die in the opening 15 minutes of that movie? A lot. No, nobody dies. Oh, wasn't it? They're all actors. They're all actors. It's all pretend. Nobody mm -hmm. gets killed. They're just they're just pretending. What fucking kind of award nobody get killed? My war and my war didn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It didn't have a soundtrack. It didn't star Charlie Sheen. Um, people got killed, and when they got killed, they stayed dead. And you know, and it didn't last for what eighty minutes or whatever. The you know, there's just there, you. The best way you could get to a realistic war movie is to like booby trap half a dozen seats every night. So that when you go to see a war movie, you might end up having your foot blown off. You might end up having your guts ripped open. Um, that would be a realistic war movie. Movies are like roller coasters. They, they're cheap thrills. They get your adrenaline going, but you know that you're perfectly safe. What the hell kind of a war movie is that? So forget about war movies being realistic. They're not. They never will be. They can't be, period. That's that's the answer to your question. There's some good documentaries that can give you some insight, but Hollywood is there to part you with your disposable income. And if they made a realistic war movie, you'd throw up and demand your money back. Well, that simple. One Sorry. of the essays, one of the essays you did, Bill, which is one of the longer ones, is what Daddy did in the war. And I think I chatted with you. I just recently, last week, had a friend my age who found some old tapes of her father, who was a World War II vet. Mm -hmm. And I transcribed the tapes for her, made her CD copies. She wanted to share it with some of the younger relatives and their family. And, and he, just, he just went back to Europe, went back to where he fought, turned on the tape recorder at night in his motel room and told these... Terrific stories. And tell me, that reminds me of what Daddy did in the war. Uh, tell me about the story, the backstory behind that, that essay. Well, this is a guy uh, who, who uh, grew up in, in the area where I grew up. Uh, I, I, his three daughters were all more or less contemporaries of mine. Um, the oldest, there are three girls. The oldest one was my older brother's age. Uh, the youngest one is my younger brother's age. And the middle one is a year younger than me. And Judy married my oldest, one of my oldest childhood friends. I've known her husband since we were seven years old. Uh, so we've stayed in touch all these years. We're both 74 now. Um, and I was having dinner with Dave and Judy at one point, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. 
and she mentioned her father had been a, a, a co-pilot on a B-24 flying out of Italy, uh, bombing Yugoslavia and Germany and, and Austria. Um, and he had never, the girls knew that he had been in the Second World War, but he had never talked about his experiences until at the very end of his life, and he had already gotten throat cancer, he made a tape recording of what, you know, his experiences, what he recalled from flying all these missions in a, in a four-engine heavy bomber. Um, and he, he made it for his children, and he told them, oh, this is just for you. This is not for publication or anything like that. But he had died. When I was having dinner with Judy and Dave, uh, Casey was dead, and and I said, Judy, <laughs> you've got to let me have this. This is this is, you know, this is primary historical source material. This is important stuff. And so she checked with her two sisters, and the three of them agreed to let me have these this tape recording transcribed. And you saw what I did with it. I was actually published originally in a German publication, an academic publication called Krieg und Literatur, uh, War Literature, War and Literature. It was a German publication in bilingual um, that a friend of mine told me about, and they published this this tape, this transcript uh, originally. And then, of course, I, I've included it here in, in my essay collection. Um, I, this stuff is amazing. I mean, there's that story in there about how they lost an engine and they had to uh, abort the mission, and they're flying back to Italy, and uh, they need an escort because they're crippled, and they hook up with a B-17 that's also crippled. And these two, these two red-tail fighter pilots come up. They're guys from the Tuskegee Airmen. And, <laughs> and, these, and these pilots go, hey, you white boys, we'll get you home okay. Don't worry. What an amazing story. And the story of the electrical cord that came loose sparking in, or, the, yeah, that's, sparking that's in the room with all, the, <laughs> with all of the bombs and how they had yeah. to kind of grab it. And I, it, it just was, it the, was harrowing. And, and the ball turret gunner that gets stuck in the turret, he can't get out. And if they have to land with the turret, with him in the turret, he'll die. Uh, he can't get out of the damn turret. And they finally got him out, but he would never go up again. He wouldn't fly again. So I don't think uh, people realize that the big, my dad was a B-17, B-24 pilot. He actually got the Distinguished Flying Cross in the, in the Pacific for being quite a remarkable navigator. But in World War II, almost 5,000 B-17s were shot down. Was, the the just, 8th it Air was Force... Un, it was unreal. Yeah. The 8th uh, Air Force, the 8th Air Force flying out of England, bombing Europe, the 8th Air Force lost, took more casualties than the Marines took in the Pacific. Unreal. Think about that. That's a step... Yeah, the, 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 first, the first year and a half almost two years of, of bombing raids on Europe, um, they, the mortality rate was well over 50% because they had no fighter escort. It, they didn't get any fighter escort until the Mustang was developed and the, uh, the P-51 was the only airplane that could fly all the way to Germany and back with these bombers. So these bombers were flying these raids with no fighter escort. 
and the mortality rate was terrible. Yeah. They, more, more airmen died than Marines in the Pacific, which is astounding. So it was not a job you really want. No, <laughs> no. And these guys, the thing is, when you read Casey's article, these were all young guys like us. They were just, you know, teenagers and guys in their early 20s. They were just right. kids. And my friend, a high school friend, wrote a book about his dad's experience, and it's the same thing. You read the, you read the book, and it's just uh, it, it. If it was a Hollywood script, you'd say that it was exaggeration what these guys went through. So anyway, yeah. Hey, Greg, jump in here if you have any uh, any essays that are of note. But while you're thinking about that, I liked your a true spat on story, number seventeen. Of, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm an Air Force brat. So when guys would come back from Vietnam, the airmen and so forth, you know, they were in a military community. And I, I never had ever observed any one of my peers, anyone treating a Vietnam vet with um, disregard. In fact, it was just the opposite. These guys that came back to my college were viewed as kind of the leaders of what of the anti-war movement because they've had well of course you know they were the ones that were leading the rallies they were ones that grabbed yeah. the mic they were they were and i don't know where that myth where it came from is it is it a just well, a, I, I do know i do uh, know where it came from tell me about it that be, it began to surface only after the war ended right and you look at first of all, this the the seminal book on this is written by a guy named Jerry Lemke, who was a professor at Holy Cross University, but is was an enlisted soldier in the Vietnam War before he went off to college, and he's written a book called The Spitting Image, in which he traces the history of this stuff. And one of the things he discovers is there is not a single contemporary account from, you know, from the 60s or 70s, from the actual time of the war. There's not a single account in print or on television that that documents veterans being spit on or or uh, uh, called baby killer or anything like that. that now hundreds thousands of veterans have claimed this happened to them surely if it happened as many times as people said somebody would have had a camera some news person would have been there some reporter would have written this down but there's not one not one single contemporary account of veterans being treated like this all those accounts begin to appear in print after 1975 and everyone says, take my word for it. This happened to me. But they can't prove it. They just have to you know, take my word for it. It really happened when it didn't. What were Americans seeing of Vietnam veterans in the late 60s and early 70s? It was all of us guys out in the street protesting the war. That's what they saw of Vietnam veterans, guys who were against the war. Well, how did this change? It really began to change in the late 70s because there were 
remember there were you know not everybody was in Vietnam veterans against the war there were veterans who came back you know angry because they weren't allowed to win they and they started telling these stories about you know the anti-war movement and of course Nixon had already set in motion this opposition you know that that the anti-war veterans were somehow un-American that they were disrespecting their buddies um and then when Reagan got elected they actually harnessed this this image of the abused Vietnam veteran. This is an entire creation. It never, ever happened. Mm. I, and I know guys, people I actually kind of respect, who insist, yeah, it happened to me, it happened to me. And you know, well, what happened to you? Well, I was in Washington D.C. and I was in uniform, and a and a bunch of demonstrators were saying, "Get out of Vietnam, end the war." And I said, "Well, what is what does that have to do with you? Who's attacking you? Who's calling you a bad? Well, it made me feel bad. That's different, you know. Right. Being ignored. Or what were those the, those demonstrators doing? What was the anti-war movement doing? It was trying to keep those the American government from getting more kids killed. They were on the side of the veterans, not against the veterans. That's the, and no opinion. one ever. I mean, I became in by 1970. I was the anti-war movement, and as I said on many occasions, I never spit on myself or called myself a baby killer. And moreover, I never saw anyone else behaving that way. I went to Swarthmore College. It's a Quaker college. There was a Viet Cong flag flying from the girls' dormitory the day I walked on campus in the fall of 69. There were anti-war demonstrations every day on the commons in front of the dining hall. Nobody was ever abusive to me. I spent four years there, and no, no one ever treated me like that. I never saw anybody doing anything like that. This is all mythology. It's mythology. The United States of Amnesia. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. What's interesting, I'm reading another book by Jerry Lemke, actually. <laughs> it's called The Cult of the, of the Victim Veteran. And he actually demonstrates that after, in the 1920s, in Germany, the Nazi party... Um, created this mythology that German veterans of the First World War were spit on and and had their uh, medals ripped off their chest while they're walking down the street and, and being t taking their uniforms off so that they wouldn't be identified as soldiers. This is exactly what the mythology says about American veterans coming back from Vietnam. Oh, they told me I should take my uniform off in the in the airport bathroom or I'd be the, the Germans were doing the Nazis were doing the same freaking thing. Why? Because they wanted to reassert the primacy of the military and basically gear up for another war. And why why did Ronald Reagan say it's our time to admit that Irish in truth was a noble cause? They if you're going to reintroduce military power as an as as an extension of American policy, you have to rehabilitate the military itself. You know, in the 1970s, who the hell wanted to join the army? The army was in ruins. 
by the end of the Vietnam War. And it took them a decade to rebuild, to get enough, you know, to get any legitimacy in military service. And uh, the Reagan administration set out to do this with a vengeance, and they succeeded amazingly. Uh, but in order to do that, they have to uh, rehabilitate the the idea of military service and that it's honorable and noble and you're defending your country. And so you do that by by, you know, glorifying the veterans and making the anti-war movement look like a bunch of, you know, commie traitors. So I'll 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 when top that I'll top that with one story uh, and then Greg you jump in here. Uh I because I'm a military um dependent I had a my ID card until I was 21 and I would fly back and forth. My parents were always out of state where I lived. And at O'Hare I'd go to the VA center cuz with my military ID I could get in. And I had hair down my butt. I was like a full-blown hippie. I mean <laughs> central casting. And I'd be sitting in there with all of the vets. I, I never, never once had a problem. Never had anybody no. say anything to me. Never, never once. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was this kind of feeling of comradeship that this is not a very good situation, and we're in this together. I not yeah. once. So same. It's the, it's the opposite story, but it's the same. The same theme. Bill, do you yeah. Go ahead, Greg. What's up, Greg? Do you use the VA for your health uh, uh, health needs? Are you a VA participant no. or do you have duty private? Why, why no. don't you use the VA? I, I, went, I went to the VA uh, in uh, would have been 1970 uh, because I had had a major hearing loss in Vietnam. And I went to have my hearing tested and they tested my ears and they said, yes, you have a hearing loss, but it doesn't affect your ability to earn a living. So we're not going to give you any money. Now, at the time I was a sophomore in college, I didn't ha I didn't even know how I was going to make a living. <laughs> but they're saying, well, this doesn't impair your ability to earn a living, so you're not getting any compensation. And then I started hearing these horror stories of Vietnam veterans going to the VA and being abused. Who ran the VA in the 60s? It was all the World War II vets, and they all thought we were a bunch of whiny losers. And so I just never went back to the VA again. I am told that some of the VA places are very good these days. Others are not so good. Sometimes, apparently, it depends even on what kind, who you're assigned as a doctor, whether you have a good experience or not. But I no, I do not use the VA for my medical. I had... Uh, my wife worked for Mellon Bank for a number of years, so she had a pretty good medical plan with the bank. And then I started teaching at the Haverford School, and the school gave me a very good medical plan. And then, and so th th that's a long-winded answer to your question. I have, I am receiving monthly disability payments from the VA for my prostate cancer. Um, but otherwise, I have never made use of the Veterans Administration. We've had people on regarding the VA. I'm a big VA fan, I'll tell you. Um, who was the gal suit? Was it Gordon, uh, Gordon. that we had on? Uh -huh. Yeah, and she wrote a book um, about the VA. I think she used to work for Bernie, and it was part of investigation. And I, I'm 
after reading the book, I'm quite impressed. I think they do good work and, and, you know, they're all constantly not being funded properly and trying to be privatized, but I'm a VA fan. So. There. Yeah. Apparently I mean, once, once the world war II generation died off, uh, it was actually our generation who was running the VA and, and they of course had a very different attitude about us guys. And then, I mean, this, this vet rep at the, uh, at Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, is is an Iraq War veteran. So it's even mm. these younger guys now who are running the show. And um, tell me about uh, Propaganda One Hundred and One. I love that essay <laughs> where it, you're you are following up with a story about Georgetown University, and that these these students were demanding that they, when Trump got involved. Uh, Demanding that they have a, a office that they could go to and cry if they break down a, a crying room. Yes, that uh, was and then picked up, went all through the you know the the conservative media, and you you were going to try to get your oh, I've, newspaper to cover that. Tell me about that. Yeah, story. I I I bought it hook, line, sinker. I heard about it somewhere, and I googled it. And there were clearly right-wing websites that had it, but I also found the story on one of the major networks, NBC, somebody like that, either NBC or ABC, um, and it's on their website. And I, so I figured, well, this must be legitimate. And I do, I am, I do think that the the idiot left, I like to call them. Um, the knee-jerk, the, the snowflake lefties. Oh, you hurt my feelings. And this shit goes on all the time. Um, they drive me crazy because they just they feed ammunition to to the radical right uh, by complaining about stupid stuff. And so I wrote this essay about you know how how the stupid snowflake right is is just making things worse for us by giving the left the given the uh you know the tucker carlson's of the world ammunition and i sent it to this guy steve fole at the new hampshire gazette and steve goes you know this sounds kind of fishy and he does a little checking around and then i do some checking around cuz he says you should make sure about this and it turns out that this is a this is a bullshit story it's it's the um alternative facts is that what trump called it right. um this is an entirely manufactured uh story probably one person must have said in some kind of a public meeting uh must have said something about that and then, and then the you know the radical right picks this up as fact and broadcasts it all over Fox and all these right wing Breitbart and places like that. But I, you know, I'm I'm very grateful to Steve because he he saved me from making a public fool of myself. This story was not true. There was never any consideration of doing something like that. Um, so that's uh, I'm very glad that Steve saved me from myself. I have learned to be more more skeptical. The problem is that uh, very often uh, the snowflake left does complain about stuff 
that is really stupid. I mean, Picayune, um, I think it was an article that shows up maybe one or two after that one, where uh, uh, this, the uh, was it Southern California School of Social Work has changed their, they, they no longer talk about um, migrant laborers because that might hurt people's feelings. Mm-hmm. And term, you know, stuff like that is, is just plain stupid. It just gives ammunition to the radical right. Um, well, well you're, you're absolutely right about. I mean, safe spaces is a big, uh, uh, a big cause now with uh, part of the left. You know that every, every yeah. place has to be made into a safe space. I mean, every space should be safe. I don't understand what that where that concept could come from. I mean, I want my neighborhood to be safe. I want streets to be. I want every place to be safe. Why? Why would there be one special place that's safe? And it's just well, a bizarre. You know what they mean, idea. but what what they mean when they say a safe space is that you you should be able to be in this physical place without anybody hurting your feelings. You're not allowed to say anything that would hurt someone's feelings. What is the point of a you? A university is supposed to be a place where you exchange ideas, um, and if you don't, if you don't run into people who think differently from you, you're never going to think. That's what's wrong with the mega people. Anyway, it the, the safe space doesn't mean it's not referring to being physically safe. It means being in a place where no one will say anything that will hurt your feelings. They and are, that's. There's a West Coast That's story about a high school. There was a WPA project at this high school in the 30s in which a left-wing artist who was out of work and had a WPA uh, a grant uh, did a big mural on, on one of the walls in which he depicted the conditions of Blacks, the conditions of migrant workers, the uh, conditions of Mexicans and so on. Uh, in the way they were treated. The idea being, of course, to expose people to injustice. Yeah. The school board got all excited about this and some of the uh, the uh, young lefties said, we're made uncomfortable by that. And you imagine they're made uncomfortable by the truth. They're made uncomfortable yeah. by someone reaching out to show injustice. That makes them uncomfortable? Really? But that's unfortunately when I read that thing about a a a room for that you can go and cry in. Uh, unfortunately, I was I was too willing to believe that because of so many other absurd demands from what I call the snowflake left. Um, so I've I've learned to be. <laughs> so Bill, I would do, I I would pay an awful lot of money to have you be a history teacher in Florida when they walk into the faculty room and say that you have to uh, tell people that uh, slaves actually had it pretty good because they picked up a trade when they were- Oh yeah, they learned a trade. That they were learning a trade. That that would be be worth having a hidden camera in that uh, faculty room. I I, I guarantee that. The fact is, I, you know, I've I have been teaching critical race theory since since I started teaching American history in 2001. But I wasn't I wasn't actually teaching critical race theory. I was teaching what we call history. 
history. This is what happened, folks. Um, and the fact is that I have, I was very lucky to be in the situation I was in at the Haverford School for Boys. There's I I would not long long before Mothers for Liberty came along, I wouldn't have lasted three weeks in a public high school, and I rather imagine that. 75%, maybe 90% of the private schools in America, I couldn't have gotten away with what I did as a teacher. I never lied to the kids. I never taught them stuff that wasn't true. But I taught real history. Um, and I taught, I did it in history and in English. I mean, you'd be amazed what you can do with English classes. I used to teach uh, in my, my English class, I used to pair up um, Langston Hughes's uh, poem "I Too" uh, with with uh, Claude McKay's poem "The Lynching," and these are two very different poems. And I'd have the boys read them, and then we'd talk about you know what's going on here, and what what you get actually is a version. The "I Too" uh, is sort of like a poetry of Martin Luther King and the lynching is the poetry of Malcolm X. <laughs> it's that different from each other. One is angry and the, anyway, I, I do that kind of stuff in English class for Christ's sake. I, Cause I taught English and history. Uh, I taught a course called American war poetry. Um, I taught a course called uh, Smedley Butler and the rise of American imperialism. That was a history class. Um, but I, you know, I just, I just taught real stuff, and right. most yeah. most schools would never have. They would have had too many complaints. There was a guy at the Haverford School who complained to the headmaster, who knew me and knew exactly who he was hiring. I'd known him for ten years before I went to work there. That's what, how I ended up there. Um, and this guy was a retired army colonel, but he knew he knew me and he liked me. Um, he had a, a board member, a board member complained to him about the communist he had working for him. Well, that be you? Said, oh, yeah. And Joe oh. said, no, 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 Mr. X, you're wrong. Earhart's only a communist on a good day. <laughs> and that was the end of the discussion. Gosh. Now, it turns out uh, by the time I taught this guy's two of his his two sons and i think what had happened is the older boy early in my early in his uh time in my classroom uh mac must have gone home and said gee dad dr Earhart said blah 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 uh because by the time i got done with his second son two years later at graduation this man came up to me almost in tears and hugged me and thanked me for what I'd done for his boys. Oh, that's you can't ask for something. And that's the guy. That. That's the guy who said you got a communist working for you. Uh, but I, I was well. I hate to say this, but I was good at what I did, and I engaged the boys and I cared about the boys, and I was able to get away with the stuff that most teachers couldn't get away with. I also was. I didn't care. What are they going to do? Fire me? I stood up in the middle of an assembly one time when the headmaster, a different, this is a different headmaster. Uh, Joe left in 2013 and we got this other guy and he's, he's giving a talk to the upper school. 
about how ISIS is trying to drag uh, drag the world back to the Middle Ages. And I'm I'm sitting there in the middle of the students, 400 kids. I'm thinking to myself, but wait a minute, Saudi Arabia has never left the Middle Ages, and we're okay with them. So what's the real story here? But what I did was to stand up in the middle of the auditorium and say loudly enough for the guy on stage to hear me, this is fucking bullshit. And I walked out. Well, that caused a bit of a stir. Yeah. Um, and later that day, this headmaster said to me, you know, I could fire you for that. And I said, go ahead and fire me. I've been fired from better jobs than this one. What are you going to do with somebody who has that kind of an attitude? Now, he didn't fire me, and I don't know if that's because I had by then enough uh, goodwill among the among alumni and parents and students, or, or I don't know, but I just, uh, that was, I don't know, four or five years ago, and I, uh, I kept right on teaching. But the thing is, most of the parents, here's the thing about teaching, most, the parents want to know two things. Do you know what you're doing? Do you care about my kid? Yeah. And if the answer to both those questions is yes, they don't really care what else you're up to. And I used to go to everything. I went to every every year I went to an athletic contest of every team the school fielded, including third team soccer, frisbee. I'm the only faculty member the boys ever saw at a golf match. I did all this stuff and the kids noticed and the parents notice. And it gives you a great deal of latitude in what you can do in the classroom itself. But I was very lucky to be where I was. Florida, are you kidding me? I mean, I would I would I I, I would quit. I wouldn't even try to be a teacher in Florida. I'm not even going to physically go to Florida again as long as I live. Yeah. I don't <laughs> place as a lunatic. Texas is the same way. I ain't going there again either. Well, speaking of democracy, <clears throat> the very first um, podcast Greg and I did, you remember that, Greg, uh, How Democracies Die? We reviewed a book, How Democracies Die, and I loved this book. I thought this was great. And and so we, Greg and I started talking about the book, and Greg said, this is just bullshit. You're assuming we have a democracy, that the, you're under the assumption <laughs> that we have a functional democracy and it's being taken away from us. You're not thinking through this. And that reminds me of your essay, This is Democracy, which is essay number 51. It's exactly what Greg was saying in the How Democracies yeah. Die. We are under the illusion that we're in this representative functioning, what the people say they vote and the representatives do what they say. Tell me about that. Am I right, Greg? Did I pretty yep, much capture right. that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Greg and I agree eighty percent of the time, and then of the twenty percent that we disagree, he's he's right about ten percent, and I'm right about ten percent. But hey, boy, he was right about that. So tell me about this is democracy. Well, um, you know, for starters, if you look at the way in which uh, the electrical the electoral system is set up. Um, you've you've got a situation where 
uh, in Wyoming, uh, the, the senators in Wyoming each each represent like something like 100,000 people, whatever the population is, divided in half. Whereas in California, the two senators from California are each representing like 30 million people. It, it, there's this grotesque imbalance of representation. Um, you, you've got in the U.S. Senate, you have uh, something like 15% uh, of the American population uh, controls 50% of the U.S. Senate. Well, that's not democracy. That's not one person, one vote. Uh, and if you look at the Electoral College, you know, there's all this stuff actually um, that's left over from getting the Constitution, getting the Southern slave states to agree to the Constitution. Um, disproportionate representation is embedded in the Constitution itself. The Electoral College with the uh, three-fifths, you know, every slave represents three-fifths of a, of, a of a person for population and tax purposes, and the Electoral College still reflects that grotesque imbalance, even though slavery was officially abolished uh, 130 years ago or whatever it was. Um, but even more interesting than that is although the the franchise has been extended, you know, originally it was a bunch, you had to be an educated rich white guy to vote. And over the years that has expanded to include uh, uh, poor white guys and then, and then eventually women and even Native Americans and black people. And, but as, even as you expand the voting base, this has been – studies have been done. I think there's one famous study from Princeton University that make clear that, that Congress consistently votes whatever the uh, – the, basically the 1% we call them these days. Whatever rich people want, that's that's what Congress does. And sometimes it might coincide with the, the will of the people, but most of the time it doesn't. But Congress continues to vote for the privileged few, uh, no matter what the American people want, whatever. I mean, look at, look at gun control. Most Most Americans want reasonable gun control, and yet they don't get it because the people don't control the government. Look at abortion. Most Americans want legalized abortion available to you know, most women under most reasonable circumstances, and yet that is not the case. Uh, the, so the government, this government has never actually represented the people. Um, it, it's sometimes better than other times, uh, it's it's very hard to look at a presidency like Donald Trump's and decide that there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, all you have to do is look at the Supreme Court nominees of Republicans and, over the course of our lifetime and the Supreme Court uh, nominees of Democratic presidents, and bam, that's plenty of difference. But to think of the United States as a functioning democracy where the government does what the people want um, and it's one person, one vote, is it's nonsense. It's never been that way. It just hasn't. Right. Greg, so, any, any final thoughts? 
I'm just uh, oh, yeah. I'd like to know what's pissing Bill. What's pissing you off today? That's my final question. <laughs> Start with what's pissing you off. Let's finish with what's pissing you off. <laughs> uh, you know what? <laughs> if you really want to know, I've been going crazy with this this goddamn uh, streaming service, Peacock. Yeah. On NBC, I I. Now, if I want to watch the World Swimming Championships, which I really enjoy, I got to have Peacock. And if I want to watch the uh, Vuelta a España, you know, there's an essay in there about bike racing. I love bike racing because uh, there's none of this USA bullshit. Um, but I, I won't be able to watch the, the, uh, the Grand Tour, the Cycling Tour of Spain in September because it's only on Peacock and I have to pay extra for Peacock even though I'm already paying for cable TV I got to pay extra for Peacock moreover the computer setup I have is too old I mean the television I have is too old it won't support Peacock even if I wanted to pay for it those capitalist pig bastards <laughs> you need to you need All to have I a do is find you need to have a middle school kid to... go ahead no, I can't. Even if a middle school, my wife knows how to do this, but we've looked into it, and my television is too old to support the Peacock system, whatever the hell you have to do. It won't play on my TV uh, because you got to buy a new TV every other year to keep up with the Joneses. So that's I'm really pissed about that because I spend a lot of time watching uh, swimming and track and field and lacrosse. Uh, I like sports because you never know how it's going to end until it ends. Yeah, your um, your essay on bike racing was wonderful. I shared that with my my bike fanatics, and they enjoyed it. So, well, hey, yeah, and there's none of the USA. You you know, it's all it's international. It's great. Anyway, that's my Greg. That really is the thing that is most on my mind over the last <laughs> few days because right now, as we talk, the World Swimming Championships are underway. And Katie Ledecky just won the 1500 freestyle and has as many international gold medals as Michael Phelps. And I can't watch any of it. Those <laughs> fucking capitalist pigs. Yeah. Well, so there you go. There you go. Hey, will you do a poem for us? I'm sure I'm, I'm looking at um, sins of the father page 208 on your thank you for your service. You oh, know, good. I'm glad you gave me the page number 208. 208. Okay. Jason, Jason Aldean just came out with a country song. Uh, try to do this in a small town, which is creating a lot oh, yeah. of controversy. Awesome. And he's elevating, you know, the, these small towns are just wonderful and uh, you can be yourself okay. and we don't put up with stuff. And I, <laughs> I, I loved this poem because I have a I have a, a granddaughter who's just going to be going into high school. And I remember uh, how okay. how at times that was an environment that was um, somewhat cruel. And um, how, how about that poem? Okay. Sins of the Fathers. I wrote this when my daughter was a middle schooler. Mm -hmm. um, today, my child came home from school in tears. A classmate taunted her about her clothes and other kids joined in, enough of them to make her feel as if the fault was hers, as if she can't fit in no matter what. A decent child, lovely, bright, considerate. It breaks my heart. 
it makes me want someone to pay. It makes me think, oh Christ, it makes me think of things I haven't thought about in years. How we nicknamed Barbara Hoffman Barn, walk, through, walk behind her through the halls and mood like cows. We kept this up for years and not for any reason I could tell you now or even then, except that it was fun or seemed like fun. The nights that Barbara must have cried herself to sleep, the days she must have dreaded getting up for school, or Suzanne Hyder, we called her Spider, and we were certain Gareth Schultz was queer and let him know it. Now there's nothing I can do but stand outside my daughter's door listening to her cry herself to sleep. There you go. Oh, I wish I could go back and live my life over again. Oh, God, I was such a horrible. I, I didn't become a human until I started to have children. And then it I really is. It's amazing. Yeah. It, it would have been better if I started having children and I was 12. I'd be a better person. So, yeah. but that's well, true. gentlemen, it's a pleasure to talk with you again. And, uh, let me know when this goes up, and I'll send it to my friends. All right, a wonderful good, good book. Good luck with your uh, your TV. Good luck with your old TV. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. But one of these days, uh, Greg and I will stop by and visit you. We'll find a town square, sit on a bench, and just sort of yell at people as they go by about different yeah. things. That would be a great. That way would to be spend. fun. That'd be okay. a great way to spend an afternoon. I'll tell you that. So, thank you, Bill. You're, right, you're, you're a national Bill. treasure. Please keep writing. Okay, thanks a lot, fellas. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.